Let's pray one more time. Father, we, we hear from this text, as Trey read it, Lord, the importance of the heart. And so, Lord, we would ask you now that you would give us receptive hearts, that you would change our hearts and thereby bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten chapters prior to the passage just read for you, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells the crowd, the people, the, his disciples that were listening to him at that point, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's passages like these that make us aware of the, the, the importance, the weight that Jesus places, that God places on righteousness. We could go to others. God declaring himself to be holy and righteous and expecting, and not just expecting, but demanding that we too be holy. Jesus comes along and says, unless your righteousness, unless your holiness is more than that of the Pharisees, you can forget heaven. And that's a dilemma because we know, without even comparing ourselves to the Pharisees and scribes, which we'll get to, but we know that left to ourselves before a holy God, we are not righteous. In fact, the Bible talks about our righteousness being like filthy rags before a holy God. And so there is indeed a unique problem that we all have when it comes to righteousness. God demands righteousness, and we don't have, left to ourselves, we don't have the righteousness that God demands. So when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it was quite a statement, especially in the context of Judaism, because it was the Pharisees and the scribes that were the, the experts of the law. And if anyone was going to be righteous, and I use that term loosely, it was going to be the Pharisees and scribes, humanly speaking, at least if you were to ask a Pharisee and scribe. And so Jesus comes along and makes clear that his standard is much higher than the standard of the Pharisees and scribes. In fact, it was much different. You see, the Pharisees, some would say, cared too much about the law. I would say they cared little about the law. They misunderstood the law, corrupted the law. So in verse 1 of our text this morning, we're told, 
the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. I think it was Ronald Reagan that said that some of the scariest words in the English language are, I am from the government and I am here to help you. In essence, that's what the Pharisees were doing. We're from headquarters, Jesus. We've been sent on a mission, Jesus, from Jerusalem headquarters to come and confront you and to to help you along because you are way out of bounds. They came to rebuke and confront him, but instead, they were the ones confronted. Friends, when we think about righteousness, which this text deals with, it it deals with purity. It deals with with, with a true righteousness that is, is required for us to stand before God and how that is obtained and how that is manifest, how that manifests itself in our lives. We need today to hear this passage. We always need to hear the Word of God. We always need to be informed and instructed, but perhaps this is an area that I think that, that even Christians today continue to stumble in. Because what we attempt to do is we attempt to make up our own rules. We attempt to make up our own standards of righteousness. We're not that much different than the Pharisees. Because we will hear the word of God and then we will come along and try to help it. Clarify exactly what it means. Friends, righteousness is critical in our relationship to God, but it must be sought properly. Righteousness is essential. You, listen, you and I will not go to heaven without righteousness. And Jesus says that that righteousness has to exceed that, that the Pharisees declared and demonstrated. There are two main parts to this text that I want us to consider. Two points, two main parts, really divided up into these two simple points. We're going to look at superficial righteousness and genuine righteousness. Superficial righteousness, you could also reword that to be man-made religion. And then we will look at genuine righteousness, the true way for us to relate to God. Let's look at the first nine verses in what we would call superficial righteousness. You know, when you read this, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem. They come from headquarters to to confront Jesus, to try to help clarify what they thought he was doing. They, They certainly came to do more than just clarify. They wanted rid of him. But they came to assist him and to rebuke and to confront his his disciples and even him in what they were teaching and what they were doing. And so they confront them. Verse 2 Come to Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That sounds pretty lame, doesn't it? You're going to come all the way from Jerusalem to tell me that I need to wash my hands, me and my disciples. It may sound pretty lame, and it may not sound as significant to us today as it would have then, but it shows you just how far out of bounds and out of alignment they were. You see, 
the reason I believe that maybe this passage, when you hear about the confrontation here regarding purity, ritual purity, and this dialogue between the tradition of the elders and the Word of God, and, and this confrontation that takes place, is, number one, we're far removed from Jesus' day, and, and number two, we think more like Pharisees than we care to admit. Friends, the, the issue of ritual purity for the Jewish person was of great significance. And it's because the Bible in the Old Testament unpacks this, this, this approach to, to worshiping God and the requirement for ritual purity. So ritual purity was a big deal. You just didn't get in your car and come strolling in for worship. You didn't do that. There was a process that had, there, was, there were certain rules and expectations that had to be met before you could even come in. Certain ones before you could even pull into the parking lot, much less come into the worship room. Now, certainly their worship was significantly different than what we would consider worship today, but for the Jewish believer, for the Old Testament law that was in effect, we know that ritual purity was something originated in the Old Testament law and was established in order to enable a person to participate in worship. So this, this, this whole concept of avoiding defilements was a big deal. You did not want defiled. I mean, I don't know that you'd want that classification today, but especially in this scheme, in this, in this setting, you did not want to be considered defiled. And that could happen, that could, that could happen through many circumstances, through, through unclean food, unclean bodily conditions, contact with unclean animals and unclean people. You can just brush up against somebody and boom, you're, you're, you're not worshiping this week until you walk, work through the steps to cleanse yourself. And one of the things that we have to realize, even in the New Testament, the principle of ritual purity that had, been, had, that had long pervaded the Jewish culture in mind was, was still present, even in the New Testament. You even see it in the disciples as they struggle with certain things that Jesus is now leading them to embrace. I think one of those examples is the inclusion of the Gentiles, those defiled people. I mean, I think Acts chapter 10 is a good, good illustration that we could go to to see, even in Peter's mind, how he was still trying to sort through this as a good Jew. I mean, he was wanting to be faithful, and he was trying, and, and yet he was struggling because of this concept of ritual purity that had, been, that had dominated his culture and his thinking for so long. But as as they often did, the Pharisees came along to help, right? They came along and they attempted to improve upon the law. I mean, after all, the law was, was needing help, right? Wrong, that's wrong. It wasn't needing help. The Pharisees, though, were certainly deceived. And so they had taken the issue, for they had taken many issues, but this, this issue of ritual purity is one example of how they had taken a law that had been established in the Old Testament to an entire, entirely different level than what was expected. So they taught a holiness, a righteousness that needed to be pursued that was heavily reliant upon this outward, superficial holiness. 
Hence the issue here of hand washing. Pharisees confront Jesus and his disciples, accusing them of breaking the tradition of the elders. And this issue of hand washing was not just merely hand washing before a meal. It had the idea of of a ceremonial washing, which was required, according to the tradition of the elders. And notice Jesus' response. He, He doesn't respond to their accusation directly. He answered them, verse 3, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus often answers a question with another question. And so instead of addressing the issue of hand washing, what Jesus does is he goes directly to the very issue that was driving their question. Ultimately, the source their authority that was leading them to ask the question. Leads me to two critical observations that we need to make regarding superficial righteousness or man-made religion. The first thing that we should observe based upon even Jesus' confrontation here with these Pharisees is that superficial righteousness or man-made religion has the wrong foundation. The debate quickly shifted from their accusation to the authority behind their accusation. Now listen, he, the, the Pharisees come along and, and talk about the tradition of the elders and Jesus confronts them. Tradition is not in and of itself a bad thing. I want you to hear me say that. For example, we do many things out of tradition, don't we? Just think about Christmas coming up. The Bible does not mandate a Christian observance. It unpacks for us clearly in detail the coming of the Messiah into the world, but that, that there's no call for a strict religious observance on how we recognize Christmas. But yet the church for ages has recognized the coming of the Messiah into the world. We call it Christmas, and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and we do so out of a long-standing tradition. And I would say that we need to continue to practice that type of tradition. Christmas is a huge religious observance that is now worldwide, and it is a traditional kind of thing. We even have Christmas traditions in our families, don't we? I mean, when does your family get together? Is it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? By the grace of God, when Jennifer and I got married, they did it Christmas Eve, we did it Christmas Day. It worked out beautifully. It doesn't always work out that way. You have to learn how to navigate those waters. But tradition, even in and of itself, is not a bad thing. It was the late historical scholar, the, the historical theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan. How'd you like that for a name? Yaroslav Pelikan. He taught at Yale. And he once gave a very helpful understanding of tradition. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. In contrast, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. In contrast, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. What Jesus was confronting here was not the existence of certain traditions, certain things even written down, but their role 
Not their existence, but their role, their, their, their authority in the life of the people. And so his point is, is that when tradition that has been established arrives at a level that is equal to the authority of Scripture, then you have a massive problem. Massive problem. That's exactly what had taken place. The Pharisees and scribes were law specialists. However, in, in their attempt to administrate the law and to, to, to practice the Old Testament law, which they said declared the what, but was not always clear on the how. And so they wrote down and even had oral traditions and even written traditions, the tradition of the elders in books like the Talmud, for example, where they would explain in detail what the Old Testament seemed to lack. So they developed these oral laws and these traditions of the elders as a fence to protect the Old Testament law. So these additional laws sought to clarify what the Old Testament meant. Now there were many problems with this, but the most significant problem is that these written and oral traditions had now been equated with the authority of Scripture. In fact, the Pharisees would often refer to the tradition of the elders or the oral law without any reference to the Old Testament law whatsoever. They were more focused on that than they were true Scripture. I mean, notice the difference. The Pharisees say to Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You see the, 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 the place that Jesus places the biblical authority, right? He said, listen, you're, you're, you're referring to, to an authority that, that, that doesn't even compete with my authority. But yet you have esteemed it almost greater than the Scripture itself. And that was a huge problem. Jesus actually goes on to illustrate this by referring to one of the commandments that they, that the, 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 the Pharisees had broken by enacting a policy that was called Corbin. He goes on in verse 4, he, said, he, he poses the question, why do you break the commandment of God? And then he explains an example of that in verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, you say, your traditions, here's their, here's their tradition that they've added to that commandment, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained for me, from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. The, the issue here, the policy that Jesus was talking about, is that along the way they had developed this, this policy that allowed people to dedicate their, their goods, their property, their money to the Lord, and once they died, that estate would be given to the temple. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. People do that today. You know, they, they make plans to... To, to give their, their, their resources to the church, for example, when they pass, that often happens. But the catch here was that while they were still alive, they could actually keep and use what they had dedicated to the Lord, even if that meant if they used it up and there was nothing left over anyway. So when their parents aged and were in need, the children would say, sorry, I've dedicated my resources to the Lord. I can't help you. And they would continue to use their own resources for their selfish reasons, but they would enact this policy, I'm sorry, I can't help you because I've pledged it to the Lord, when in fact they had no, no real 
desire to give it to the Lord to begin with. So they, they came up with this crafty way to avoid responsibility, ultimately breaking a commandment. They weren't honoring their father and mother. In fact, they were incurring judgment upon themselves through this policy. So Jesus uses that as, a, as an illustration to say, see, this is an example of how you make void the word of God by elevating your, your, your foolish traditions. They would uphold a tradition and at the very same time break a commandment. So basically Jesus' point, his point was simply to them, how dare you? How dare you come all the way down from Jerusalem and confront me and my disciples merely because we've not followed one of your traditions when in fact what you do is break the very word of God. Earlier I said that we are more like Pharisees than we care to admit. And the reason I say that is that we, too, are easily caught up with tradition and ceremonies. Not that they're bad in of themselves. Again, I, I affirm tradition in certain things that we should do. But when they become ultimate, that's when we get into trouble. One example of that is, you know, most of you know I grew up in Tennessee. And, and to not have worship on Sunday night would be unheard of. So when I, just to be honest, when I came here and we didn't have Sunday night worship, which I have come to love to embrace, by the way, for many reasons. But it, I felt like I was in sin. Like the first six months I was here, I was like, we don't have church tonight. And so I'm, I'm just trying to scramble around and figure out in my own mind, what do I do? You know, I'm supposed to be at church and worship. And, and for some churches, and in, in, even maybe around here, if you, if you were to even talk about doing something different on Sunday night besides worship, you would be considered a heretic. And that's the truth. So you can see how we are good legalists. We love to add rules and laws that go beyond what Scripture says in order to sort of grade righteousness. And that's what we would do. Hey, if you don't come back to Sunday night, you're one of those average Christians. But if you came back Sunday night, you're the real deal. Yeah. And if you came back to Wednesday night, you were really the real deal. We would sort of judge and and come up with this standard of righteousness that nowhere was found in God's word. We wouldn't call it that, but that's exactly what we would do. We would judge people based upon how many services a week they attended. How foolish. Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive to these things. They have their place. There are certain traditions that we ought to honor and, and cherish, but not to the neglect of the authority of Scripture itself. There's nothing necessarily wrong with expectations and rules even and tradition, but yet when they become equivalent to the authority of God's Word, therein lies the problem. Again, we, we could go on and on about how Christians do that today, you know, that only certain types of clothes should be worn. Only certain types of music can be sung. Certain types of food and drink can be uh, taken. And, and Christianity becomes nothing more than an endless rule book 
of do's and don'ts. Do this and don't do that. Go to church, say your prayers, go to confession, do this, do this, do this. Check the box and you are righteous. Folks, the point is that the Bible alone is our source of authority. And we need to allow the Bible to speak for itself and not try to help it along the way by adding legalistic rules and regulations that nowhere fit the Scripture. And we need to unapologetically, unapologetically be committed to the Bible as our sole source of authority. Even though there are good traditions in the church, they are not the Bible. I love confessions of faith. We just incorporated one in our, in our new bylaws and constitution. I love to read through old confessions. and There are a lot of faithful confessions of faith throughout Baptist history, but they are not the Word of God. They point us to what the summer, good summaries of what the Word of God teaches, but they are not equivalent with the Scripture. The Bible establishes what genuine righteousness looks like, and it is not found at a bathroom sink or in a bottle of Germex or in some kind of outward standard that you have to meet. It has the wrong foundation, but it also has the wrong focus. You know, when you look at verse 7, Jesus really lets us know how he feels, doesn't he? You hypocrites, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Quotes from Isaiah 29 verse 13. And accuses them of false worship and hypocrisy. This word hypocrite actually was used to describe one who plays a part on a stage in a theater. No offense, Jacob. That's what the word meant. It wasn't used necessarily in a negative fashion. It's just what it described. It was one who played a part, played a role in a theater. And especially during that Greek culture and that, that time period, actors would often wear various masks according to the roles they impersonated. And so, so a hypocrite became known out of that kind of background as someone who acts out a role without sincerity. They were a pretender. That's exactly what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being, as a bunch of pretenders. They were more concerned with how they looked to others than they were with their true condition before God. The point in all of this, friends, is that one can go through all the, all the outward forms of religion, like Israel did in Isaiah's day like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, and still be far from God. Friends, listen, God is 10,000 more, 10,000 times more concerned with the place of your heart than he is with the performance of your lips. There's nothing more distasteful to God than a religious pretender. And yet, there are millions and millions of people every Sunday who simply go into houses of worship and they are doing nothing 
but pretending. Uttering things with their lips that their hearts have no, there's no connection to. Memorizing these statements, these creeds, these prayers that they're just told to pray from a little child. They go in, and in many times, I've talked to many people who are raised up in these kinds of environments, and they say, nothing, there, there was nothing there of substance. If you think I'm picking on other religious groups and denominations, that very same reality can be true of you right here in our congregation. You can come in here and pray, sing words, recite creeds, and worship in vain, and pretend your way all the way through until you can breathe a sigh of relief just to get out and enjoy the rest of your day. God is not pleased with that. That is not worship. That is hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy that will be condemned because that is a superficial righteousness. You have bought into some lie of the devil that if you just do this and do that and make it look good and sound good, that somehow God is going to be pleased with you when at the end of the day when you stand before him, he will look at you and say, I never knew you. Never knew you. Superficial righteousness has the wrong focus. It, it becomes more about who we are. This outward manifestation of what we can do to present ourselves in some fashion as holy. When the reality is that the righteousness that God requires will only be found internally. Which leads me to the second point, genuine righteousness. He goes on in verse 10 called the people to him and said to them and so he's addressing the Pharisees now now he's a, addressing a larger crowd he calls the people to him and said hear and understand Jesus is wanting to clarify for everyone's sake here it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person then his disciples came and said to him do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying And he answered, yes, but I don't care. No, he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. They're blind guides. And let the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now kids, don't go home and quote that to your mom and dad before dinner. Genuine righteousness. See, after engaging the Pharisees, Jesus calls the crowd now, and he elaborates further on the righteousness that God requires, what true righteousness is. And, and he unpacks that for them 
It's not what goes into the mouth. It's not outward kinds of things, doing, doing these kinds of outward things, eating the right things, doing the right things that defile a person, but what comes out of the mouth. You see, the Pharisees had made holiness, the Pharisees had made righteousness a matter of external observances. When in reality, it was a matter of the heart. And Jesus is confronting that error head on. He's saying, listen, we're not talking about external realities here that make you righteous or not. We're talking about an internal reality. This is what either defiles you or presents you in the right before God. And the disciples are concerned with Jesus. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, And Jesus responds with a parable. In essence, he's applying the parable of the weeds to them. They're plants that the Father has not planted. These Pharisees are plants that the Father has not planted, an expression of the sovereignty of God here. These aren't true plants. And they're going to be rooted up and destroyed. They're blind guides. Don't listen to them. Because if you listen to them, they will lead you astray. And you will go to the pit with them. That's a big deal, friends, because do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying these who want to emphasize external religion, artificial holiness, superficial righteousness, that you can make yourself right before God by doing external things or by avoiding things. If you think that's the way to God, you're going to a pit right behind the ones who take you there. But let me tell you what defiles you. Defilement is a matter of the heart. Not a matter of the hands or the stomach. And when he's talking about the heart, he's talking about not the muscle that pumps blood through your body, but the internal you. Who you are at the very core of your being. So two quick things he talks about the problem, and that's exactly the problem, is our hearts, by their very nature, are corrupt. We have a heart problem. You may have perfect blood pressure, but you have a heart problem. You may have low cholesterol. You have a heart problem. All of us have a heart problem. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the problem. Our heart, biblically speaking, is is the control center of our lives. and, And everything we say, everything we do is ultimately driven by our heart. And the problem is that our hearts are sinful. Our problem is that we all need a new heart. That's our problem. And you can't give yourself a new heart through ceremonial washings, through the reciting of prayers and creeds and this and that. Only God can give you a new heart, which is the solution we, we find in the Bible. The good news, the alarming news is that we are all in a bad state because we have bad hearts. And what's even more alarming is, is that we can't 
fix that. We try. We try to fix that, but we can't. But the solution is, is that God can fix that by, by a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36 The Lord says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Romans chapter 2, Paul makes it clear that we need a transformed heart. Law's not going to do it. We need a new heart. In Romans 2, we could go on and on about this section in Romans, but in Romans 2 verse 28, he's talking specifically about the Jews here. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, Religion is not a matter of outward external observances. You can't do all these things and somehow be made right with God. But a Jew, a, a true believer, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter. You see what he's saying? He, he, he's saying that we have a heart problem and the only way for us to be made right with God is not to try to clean ourselves up on the outside, but to have a trans a transplant of a new heart on the inside. No one is made righteous by keeping the law, Old Testament or New Testament. You will not be saved by keeping the law. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law, ever. You are saved only by faith in the one who has kept the law. Only the one who can present you blameless. You are saved by trusting in the one that can give you new life, can give you a new heart. Friends, listen, until your heart is changed, your actions and your behavior will not change. You can try all you want to try to change yourself, to try to change this, or to try to be a better this or a better that, and to do the, the seven steps here and the 12 steps here, and, and do all these outward things to try to make yourself better. But if your heart has not been transformed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you will not change. You will not change. The heart is what matters. It, indeed, it's the source of everything that we do, good or bad. That's why Proverbs 4.23 is so important. Keep your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. J.C. Ryle summarized it quite well. He said, the heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing that we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? In our hearts by faith. Friends, as you consider this text, there's really one question you and I must answer. Do you stand before a 
a holy God to which you must give account. With clean hands and a properly fed stomach? Or do you stand before him with a new heart? Do you stand before God with some kind of external effort to try to make yourself better? Try to present yourself clean when you're not? Or do you stand before God pleading the mercy of Christ for a new transformed heart? All of us need that. And it's only through a new heart that is given to you that true obedience, true change, true transformation can take place. Friends, listen, we get it so wrong so many times. We try to change as if that will give us a new heart when in reality it's the new heart that gives change. Cry out to the mercy of God and say, Lord, give me a new heart. I can't make myself better. I can't present myself clean before you by ceremonial ritual, by some kind of external religious practice. But God, change me internally by the grace that you love to extend because of what Christ has done for me to to give me new life, to give me a new heart. Cry out to him in faith and he will grant you that. And then you can be changed. And it's from a new heart that you can see life afresh and new. It's from a new heart that you can begin to walk in a manner pleasing to God. When Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will, not in, you will not inherit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, he meant that. But that standard that he's talking about is a standard of absolute perfection. Defined by God himself. And none of us meet that. But Christ has. Friends, you don't need yourself as a Savior. You're a lousy Savior. You need Christ. And Christ alone. He is a sufficient Savior. He is the perfect Savior. He is the one that can satisfy your soul. He is the only one that can give you a new heart. Look to Him And quit looking to yourself. Even as Christians. You've looked to Christ in faith. Sometimes Christians, we, we, we look back to ourselves. To what we can do. To how we can perform. Friends, have you bought into the deception of superficial righteousness? trusting in your performance to make you right before God? Or have you cast yourself at the mercy of Christ and trusted in His finished work to save you? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. So that in Him, in Him, we might become, finish it, The righteousness of God. Genuine righteousness comes from the righteousness that Christ 
credits to you through faith and through a transformed heart. Don't seek it anywhere else than Christ. Friends, the Lord is not pleased with mere lip service and superficial righteousness. He is only pleased with those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if there's something that you and I need to be most thankful for, this Thanksgiving, it is the fact that Christ has done everything necessary to present you blameless to the Father. And that is not just something you should be thankful for for one day. Friends, that is good news. That should be your motive for living and walking in Him by faith every day. Christ is your righteousness. Look to Him for that. And don't look to some kind of ritual or even yourself. Trust in Christ and be made righteous. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. That in spite of our problem, in spite of our diseased hearts, in spite of the failures that we mount daily, in spite of so much wrong with us, Lord, we rejoice this morning that there, there is everything right with you. And through Jesus Christ, we can have hope, we can have lives that are transformed, we can have new hearts. Through Jesus Christ, Lord, we can have joy and hope. Father, there are people in this room right now that are discouraged. Lord, there are people in this room that feel the weight of guilt and shame and failure. And Lord, they only feel that intensified throughout the days. Because, Lord, they're seeking to trust themselves and to somehow perform well before you when, in fact, Lord, we all have failed. And our only hope is not in ourselves, is not in some outward religion or outward manifestation of rituals and things of that nature, but, Lord, our only hope is in Christ alone. So, Lord, would you help people that are struggling and guilty and shamed would you help them to look beyond that to Christ who can set them free would you give them eyes to see would you give them new hearts would you grant faith today Lord so that people would come to know you in a transformative way not in a ceremonial way not through tradition not through legalism, not through rules and this and that, but Lord, through Christ and what he has done. Lord, would you save people in this room? Would you strengthen and sanctify your people? Would you do a work of transforming grace through transformed hearts for your glory? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.